Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with a very interesting guest. I'm here with Bill Miller. And Bill is a mutual friend of John Torday, who is an evolutionary medicine researcher at UCLA, and he introduced me to Bill. And Bill has a book called The Microcosm Within. And the club that you could say Bill is a part of is people who have come to very similar conclusions about evolution having come from entirely different points of view and having never talked to each other department. Correct. So, so for example, there's a gentleman named John Hands who wrote a book called Cosmo Sapiens, and he spent 10 years writing this book, and it's got a probably about 15 or 20% of his book is about evolution, and he came to virtual identical conclusions as I did, having never talked to me and me never having talked to him. And another person who's kind of like that is Henry Hang, who is a cancer research at Wayne State University in Detroit. And then another one is Bill. And Bill used to be a radiologist. And I thought for today's conversation, maybe I could hear the story of how a radiologist stumbles into evolution and decides to devote a fair amount of time and attention to it. And he's published papers and has uh, been very active in his own corner of the world. So nice to meet you, Bill. Nice um, you. I talked to Bill on the phone, hadn't actually seen him. So this is fun for me too. So Bill, well, tell me a little bit about your life and your career and eventually catch us up to you stumbling into our crazy world. Well, thank you for asking me about this. Very few people do. And I think the part that your listeners will like even more than talking about evolution, and I think many of your listeners are quite cued into that, is I can offer that my own personal history of a second act that is extraordinarily different from anything else I'd done before hmm. should be a message of adventure and hope. I make a big deal about having learned about cells that they spend a lot of time exploring the environment. Well, that's what we're all doing. As human beings, we are meant to be explorers. And we don't often think of ourselves as continuously going through life as a journey of exploration. But I'll, I'll offer a very quick capsule of my own background. And I think your listeners will understand how if your mind is open, or if you're as twisted as I might be, you can remake yourself in some mighty interesting ways and go down pathways that lead to things that you never thought would happen. So very quickly, I was a practicing physician, a diagnostic radiologist, and had been that for about 20 years, contentedly doing my work and bringing a large number of new technologies into the field at the very moment that I began was when radiology was really taking off. It became, instead of a backroom kind of, of a medical practice, it was the front line. Why? Because of computer tomography. 
Mm. New forms of ultrasound, a myriad number of new interventional techniques of which I did a very large number of those. And then MRI. So any lively mind is going to be very interested in those particular types of things. But what happened to me was a chance encounter and I owe it all to a girl named Sue. And I'll tell you, we started what has continued to be a lifelong affair. It's not physical because she's quite disinterested in me at this moment and never has been. So here's what happened. I'm at a conference in radiology and these are very long days. These are premier radiologists. They're giving very detailed information. You sit there hour after hour and you're learning and you're learning. And I don't know how many of your listeners might be like me, but I have a limit. Gets to be the third afternoon and I can't take it anymore. And I turn to a partner of mine who's with me and it's about 3.30 in the afternoon or so. I said, you know, at four o'clock, I'm getting the hell out of here. And this is in Chicago. I meant to mention the big annual meeting. I'm going to the Field Museum or I'm going to the Art Institute. If you want to come along, you choose and we'll do it. And he goes, let's go to the Field Museum. And we do. When I get there, I walk into the rotunda and I don't know who among those who are listening have been inside that museum. But the first thing that strikes you is a gargantuan, gorgeous Tyrannosaurus Rex suit. A girl oh, named Montana. Yes. So I'm standing in front of this statue and I've got a- Sue is not returning your affection? Uh, say? Sue isn't returning your affection? She just isn't turned on to me. I don't know why. I'm such a nice girl. <laughs> so I'm standing in front of this thing and I've never thought about evolution. I'm just standing there. I'm in mid-career. I'm contented. And I just start to notice things. Well, I'm a radiologist. I know about bones really well. I know about the humerus bone. I know about the thigh bone. I know about the hip bone and how it articulates with the pelvis. I know all about the shape of the pelvis and the difference between men and women. I know about ribs. I know the number of vertebrae that are in nose. I know how jaws articulate with the midface. And I'm looking at all these things. So the only thing that strikes me is if I could doctor up some of the images that I could take of a T-Rex, let's say the hip joint, and with very, very minor changes, I could fool a radiologist coming through a stack of films. I mean, if I changed the sizes and I made it all appropriate, it could sail through. It's just minor variation off a human scale. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You could literally Photoshop a dinosaur pelvis into a human pelvis just by oh, seeing yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, trust me, it's not hard to do. They don't look huh. exactly alike, but they're so much alike. Wow. And, and that's if you, that's and if, interesting. If you pass it along without preamble, it would be shocking because the muscular attachments are even look alike. The, the little ridges along the bones where the muscles attach. Well, it struck me as uncanny. And I thought, I, I don't understand this. So then I'm reading the descriptor. And I'm mumbling this to my partner who's looking at me like I'm a nutcase. And then I'm mumbling it. I'm looking at the descriptor. And it goes, T-Rex survived for 6 million years. And I'm thinking, 6 million years with those tiny little arms, this makes no sense. Anyone that has ever looked at a T-Rex photo looks at those arms that everyone acknowledges. They just don't make any sense to the scale of the beast. Well, I know just enough about evolution that it's all about survival of the fittest. So I'm thinking over six million years, although I also know it's always gotta be slow. It's necessarily gradual, we'll talk about that later. 
And I'm thinking, well, they've got six million years. That's a long time. That doesn't make sense to me either. How could this monstrosity not change substantially over six million years? And I expressed these things to my partner, and he looks at me, and we're good friends, and he doesn't think I'm a jerk. He just says, it's just a matter of time, and you're an idiot. And he walks away. Well, it's as if he threw a gauntlet at me. I didn't know why I had to know, but I did. And from that moment forward has led to this interview, talking about evolution, that was the last, well, not the last thing, but not on my mind at all, the mo before I walked into the rotunda of the Field Museum. So the message to those people who are listening is, be open to these impacts. In biology, we call these epigenetic experiences. This is the environment interacting with you. And now that I know a lot more, I have to say I'm sure it was a microbiome moment, although I don't know why. So we can talk about that later too. So th this is how I came to be talking with you today. So your friend says to you, well, Bill, it's just a matter of time and you're an idiot for being... For questioning. Like asking too many questions about how this stuff actually works, right? Well, yeah, there's, also, gotta, there's nothing to think about. I've got to say, I have been astounded at the ability of the traditional evolution narrative to just kill curiosity dead. It's like a film comes over their eyes and they become hypnotized and they are no longer want to know or worry about how things work. And so like, let, this me, is let, me, reinforce what, let me reinforce what you're saying uh, because it's such an important thing. First of all, let's make it absolutely directly plain that nobody's stupid. It's not ignorance. It's not lack of IQ. It has nothing to do with that. It is a point of view. I can give you an exact example of ingrained thinking. So I was invited to do a lecture on evolution at UCLA through John Torday, whom you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I was delighted to do that. And I did my little PowerPoint presentation to speak for 50 minutes. I answered some questions. And then, of course, you're rated. As a lecturer in university, you're always rated now. And John forwarded me or at my ratings, which overall were very good. A lot of tens. A lot of the graduate students, I was speaking to graduate students in biology, had come up to me and said that I really just, I just knocked them around and sent them down a rabbit hole. They'd never thought of it that way before. But the senior most member of the department gave me an eight. And so that brought my average score down. The thing is, there is an ingrained belief system. And it's very tough to challenge that. That hasn't changed over time. Let's not forget phlogiston. The idea that there's a, some innate substance in wood, in things that burn, that is the burning substance. It's not the substance interacting with oxygen. It was an innate capacity. Phlogiston, that idea lasted for hundreds of years until Lavoisier came up with the experiment to overturn that. Look at Pasteur. Look at Semmelweis. The poor fellow went bad. Just went crazy because no one would listen to him about washing your hands. This is science, and it's just the way it's got to be because it's human nature. Well, so your friend walks off in a huff, but you didn't. No, so I, I walked off to the Internet. So my curiosity was important, but the Internet was crucial. It opened much more than my local library could ever have done. 
it opened up a world of disputed opinions that I could learn about and I could sift through. Let me mention one other thing that I had noticed that clicked in, a data point as it were, that clicked in, that motivated me to start to look at evolution. I had noticed in my practice as an imager that there are a lot of circumstances when infection and cancer could not be distinguished readily on the basis of the computed scan or the MRI or even an x-ray now and again. You'd okay. say, well, they're very different processes and why would they look so closely together that you can't tell the difference? Why is it also true that sometimes, not often, but sometimes a pathologist can't tell the difference between infection and cancer? In the pancreas, it's notorious actually that pancreatic inflammation, pancreatitis, every now and again is read out as cancer. So every once mm. in a while, you have a very long-term pancreatic cancer survivor, and it's very unlikely that person had cancer. They had a form of inflammatory change that mimicked cancer. Why was that, I wonder? And so okay. I'm trying to answers to all of these questions through some kind of unified theory. Well, so you connected a dot between Sue the dot, Sue the dinosaur and the short arms and pancreatic cancer being confused with just swelling. What I connected was I didn't understand. And oh, it's, the okay. internet, it's the internet that permitted me to explore all of the scientific literature. I, I wrote papers as a, a medical student and as a resident in radiology. I had a medical library to go to. I could go through all of the journals at will. Well, it was much harder for me to do that raising a family in Pennsylvania. I didn't have that, but I had the internet. I had everything. Yeah. Everything that a lively mind, a curious mind needed to sustain a line of investigation. So I began to actively formulate ideas. And then it just became a terrific hobby. And then it became a passion. And then it became an obsession. And this is why we're here together. Okay. So walk me down your path of discovery. So you got triggered into being interested by Sue. And then what? How did you end up coming to different conclusions than the majority of the profession? So tell me that story. I think that the major difference really was the fact that I didn't get trained as a classical biologist. I didn't, in fact, take any biology classes before going to medical school. I know that sounds really odd. I took physical chemistry and physics, but I was in a very lucky specialized program, a six-year medical program at the university that I went to. And so I only had two years of college before I had my four years of medical school. I didn't get the normal training. So I, I didn't have the background knowledge inculcated into me from the get-go from which I would have found it hard to step away from. I also learned through medicine that a lot of what is a dictum in one decade becomes dross in another. Things get overturned. In fact, everyone that's listening knows that there have been things that they were told as gospel for their health that are no longer considered true. Like fat I mean, is bad for you. Well, the only thing that has stayed steady over my lifetime is smoking is bad. But if you, <laughs> if you go to butter versus margarine or meat or no meat, and so on and so on, highly disputed. It takes a very long time to prove something in science. Very, very difficult, and that's why it requires patience. So for me, 
I started to look at the standard pillars of Darwinism. So what are those? Well, the standard dictums, and I think the most important one that's relevant for our short discussion today, is that evolution is caused by random genetic variation. And I will admit that I started looking at that assumption with an immediate bias. I just couldn't fathom how randomness could affect the exquisite changes that we see on this planet. I just couldn't get it. And I was not interested in creationism, religious beliefs aside. I just wasn't interested in that answer. I wanted a scientifically grounded answer and I wasn't going to be looking at that one. Like Mike Behe is a totally brilliant guy. We just don't agree at the end point, which is that you have to have a creator being in order to do it. I believe that my search should be for a process that enabled it to occur. And we could determine who started the process. That's another metaphysical debate, but that was not where I was interested in going. Mm -hmm. So from the very moment that I started examining the vast literature on this, I was looking for reasons to not accept that that was so. And one of the very first things I came across as I researched the literature, and it was very important to me, was a comparison between a fossil of a horseshoe crab of 400 million years ago and a photograph of a contemporary horseshoe crab. I have a photo in my book as it happens. And that has not changed to any substantial degree over 400 million years. <laughs> All right. So you and I have everybody that's listening has a computer by definition or a phone, which is a computer. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what the media generator is. We all know what happens to system due to random variation without adequate controls. And we also know that endless random variations leads to chaotic results over time. It reaches a criticality. It could seem to have purpose for a while, but then at a certain moment, it undergoes criticality and it collapses to begin again. And so it was important for me to look for another source energizing how biology could be propelled on the planet. And from this, my background as a radiologist was pertinent. My thoughts about disease mattered. Here's why. As a radiologist, it's my job to identify the category of disease process. So if I'm looking at a CT scan of a lung and I see a certain pattern of fluid in the lung, I'll say, this is pneumonia and very likely a homophilus influenza would be the most likely thing, or I might be able to give a hint as to the exact form of infection. What I was aware of as a physician is that certain organisms consistently caused certain types of infections. I knew that toxoplasmosis, for example, which is a microorganism, goes to the brain, but in a very characteristic pattern, so much so that I could make that diagnosis on the basis of the CT or the MRI. It goes to around the ventricles, around the central fluid pathways of the brain. But over and over again, it does the same thing. Why? And then I asked myself, you know, let's just look for the simplest answer because it's where the microbe preferred. The idea for physicians was it just circulates around and it finds a spot. Mm. But it's more than that. Somehow or other, I decided that microbes had to have a preference. Mm -hmm. And if they could have a preference, 
that was a deterministic, that was a not volitional in the sense that you and I would make a volitional act, but was problem solving. It was solving its own problems in its own way. Mm -hmm. And then it was able to cooperate with other like-minded microbes to build the kind of a structure that's large enough that could be seen easily on a CT scan or an MRI because that's millions of organisms. They're aggregating together. They had to have complex signaling. They had to have their own architecture because it's always the same architecture. So that it's as if there was planning. And of course, it's not human-like. I'm not trying to anthropomorphize microbes, but it struck me that we were very, very much underestimating the lives of a cell. And of course, I wasn't the first person to think that. But I was the first person in a long time for medicine to think about it. And that allowed me to carry on from one pathway to another until I could come out with a consolidated theory that I think is satisfying and fits all the data points that are out there. So what I believe underlies biology are intelligent cells. Now you could ask me yourselves, what started these intelligent cells? We could get back to Mike Behe, but we're just gonna start with the simple provable notion that cells are intelligent. And what is intelligent about them? Well, I can explain that through their activities. They trade resources, they congregate, they cooperate, they collaborate. They assess information, they communicate it in patterns that are readily understood by others. They problem solve together. And most important, they measure. What do they measure? Mm. Information. Mm. So cells are a measuring instrument. And once you understand that, you understand that cells, when they are acting together purposefully as individual agents, are working towards a common problem-solving end, which is what we call engineering. And then it's not a big leap of thought to think, not knowing that I do, that we are holobionts, and I'll explain what that is for those of your audience that aren't familiar with it. It's not a crazy thought to imagine. It's a difficult thought, but not a crazy thought, that perhaps cells of all kinds are capable of engineering together to make you and me. And that is, in fact, our living system. So a holobiont is what we are. And some people dispute that term and they don't like it. But let's not go through all the minutia. Let's just talk about what are you and I exactly? And I think most people know that there is a microbiome, that they know that their guts have microbes and that they're participating somehow. But I don't think many people that are listening understand the depth and the intimacy of this interrelationship. It is so intimate, in fact, you cannot live without them. But here's much more importantly, they cannot be what they want to be without you. Mm. It is more than symbiosis. It is a form of architectural cellular living. We are cellular solutions to cellular problems. What is the cell's most basic problem? If it's an information gathering entity and it needs to gather information in order to protect itself, it just wants to maintain its state of preference. The simplest thing that a cell that exists for whatever reason it does simply wants to stay in its preferential state. Oh yeah, that's what you and I do too. Exactly. We spend all of our days trying to figure out how to maintain ourselves in preferential states. Cells are doing the same thing. 
we're doing that because they're doing that. And they work together to assess information. The collective assessment of information is better information. We all know that. We know that ourselves. What happens when a person's in a game show and they don't know the answer between door number one or two or three? What do they do? They turn to the audience. It's our instinct. We ask those gathered around us to give us your assessment. And then we make our individual choice. Well, cells of our body are doing exactly the same thing. The purpose of multicellular life is the simplest solution to the problem of imprecise information. Information is imprecise to cells. Here's why. Two reasons. One is, and, and this one's the obvious one, which is any information a cell gets has to come through a membrane or cross distances. <clears throat> There's inevitable degradation. Why is that? It's, it's got to go across a boundary and it has time delay from the moment the information starts coming to when it's received. The process of analysis is itself its own form of imposition of degradation. So this is what's going on. And the second thing is the nature of information in the living state is not like computers at all. It's not binary. It's not Shannon binary, measurable binary information. It's not ones and zeros to any living thing. Every living thing exists in ambiguity. Oh yeah, we do too. There's nothing that we know of that is not a source of concern and anxiety for us. There's almost no decision that we make that is absolutely so clear that no thought needs to be given. And I'm, I'm not talking about reflex actions, I'm just saying information is clouded to us. It is to the cell. How does the cell solve the problem? Multicellularity. The simplest explanation I think is almost always the most robust. So how does this get back to the concept that random genetic variation is the cause of evolution. Well, it can't be if you have Tyrannosaurus rexes that exist unchanged for six million years. How could they resist the change? It wouldn't have to be better or worse, it just would be different. How could you have anything, any system resisting for 400 million years, any substantial anatomic, morphological, or phenotypic changes that can be measured horseshoe crabs. So we know that's not the answer. So what can be the answer? Well, we, the answer can be that environmental stresses cause changes in cells and cells tend to change their engineering to fit the environment according to the way they want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's the cornerstone of our biologic system. Intelligent cells measure, measuring cells engineer, and we are that product. So how did that change your practice of radiology? Not a bit. Not, not one bit. Really? Actually, it did dramatically. I left radiology. <laughs> okay. To this among one other interest that we're not going to go into, but you couldn't do everything. I realized I could not serve all the things that interested me and something had to go. And my feeling, I've been very, very fortunate in my career. And it had provided enough financial security where I could make the choice to set that aside and try this new thing. And I've been very lucky to meet some terrific people that are generous in their help for me, some people like John Torday mm -hmm. uh, and others. And I have a facility for research and writing. 
And so a couple of dozen publications later and a bunch of books, and we're doing something different for our lives. And every single person that's listening, every single person has that option. If something clicks inside them, it's like a hidden compartment that's in all of us. And I'd like all of those of you who are listening to realize, you know, I, I don't like the word empowerment. It's just so overused. But I would say, if you're curious and fearless in that curiosity, I think that's very important. And I believe that fearless means you don't mind the disapproving thoughts of others. I mean, I've tried to interest my wife in this topic. And I will tell you that glaze over it does not express the, left, the lack of interest that my terrific wife has. But my point is, it's enough if it self-reinforces. And any of you out there may have that thing that's in you that just is begging to get out. And unless you are willing to give it a shot, it can never happen. So you're a medical doctor and you've done the profession of radiology and then you switch into this. How do new views of evolution potentially change the way we could or should or will practice medicine? Well, that's a great question. One of my strong interests because of the way I viewed cells and because we are a collaboration, an intense cooperative cellular collaborative among microbes and our own personal cells. Those are called eukaryotic cells. But those are our own personal cells that we identify as having our own personal properties. It naturally stirred an enormous interest in the microbiome. And the more I learned about the microbiome, the more I realized that we're just on the beginning of the exponential curve. I'm sure all of your, those that are listening have seen those exponential curves where it stays very close to the flat line on the bottom for a long time. And then all along towards the right-hand side, it starts to zoom upwards at an ever-accelerating rate. We're just at liftoff. Mm. We're just at the beginning of the liftoff that is coming off that bottom line. We're learning about microbes. We're learning how, how they associate together in our bodies because microbes make phenotype just as you and I have phenotype. We have obesity phenotype. We have a lean phenotype. We have arms. We have legs. That's all phenotypes. Microbial communities in our bodies make phenotypes also. And what we're going to learn to do in medicine is to aggressively manipulate these things to protect us. Microbes protect us against pathogens. We will find means of protecting ourselves against cancers because microbes cause cancers. Cancer has different types of causes, but one of them, one of the major ones, is infectious disease. We know that. HPV for cervical cancer, marked rising incidence of anal cancer, HPV again. So we're going to find that our best allies in fighting off this is both immunization, which is our own juicing up, revving up our own immune cells, but also microbial partnerships. And the first line of medication at some point going forward is going to be an adjustment of your microbiome, your cell-cell communication mechanism, bioelectric pathways, all the things that we don't do now or just beginning to do with microbial manipulation through probiotics and prebiotics. It's going to be done large scale. It's going to be the thing that's done most commonly and pharmaceuticals will be used as a second line. So let's take diabetes or obesity. We could talk about either of them. Right now, 
medications are required to treat that. I will predict that at some time in the next couple of decades, medications will only be used if microbial therapies have failed. Hmm. It won't be immediate, but it will happen over time. Eventually, we will treat pneumonia with nebulization, a microbial cocktail, and antibiotics will be used much more sparingly because antibiotics are like a shotgun blast to the body and its microbiome. And although antibiotics are essential to our health, one of the great wonders that has ever been devised in the history of medicine, they carry certain downsides. Yeah. You just have to accept that in many things in life, there's a positive and a negative. Antibiotics are vital to our protection, but we have a history of overusing them and we have to learn to use them more judiciously. So these are the things that are going to change medicine. And it will be dramatically different. The treatment of obesity may turn out to be an exclusively profiled microbial cocktail. But here's the thing. It won't be a necessarily specific strain that's the same for everybody. What we're just beginning to learn is that the microbes inside you, they all have particular personalities. And by that, I mean they, they function in the butyrate cycle or they help short-chain fatty acid production which functions in all sorts of parts of our metabolism. But what we're going to find is that it is the metabolic profile of all of them together that counts. So you're going to have a personalized cocktail of some kind that you're going to take over a long period of time, not just to cure you of the acute thing. It will be true preventative medicine, just as immunization is. Right now, there's very little preventative medicine beyond immunization. Very little. I mean, I know everybody's been told to go on a low cholesterol diet, and the results are still unclear, whether that's of any use whatsoever. Just unclear. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying yep. it's unclear. So medicine is going to change dramatically because we will understand the ins and outs of the microbiome and be able to use it. I will point out to the listeners that this is bioengineering, obviously, right? But my further point is this, if we can use microbes to engineer, we're only smart enough to use them to engineer because they are engineers. In other words, what we're doing is tweaking them in the bioengineered direction that serves our human aims. Mm -hmm. but, but the fact that we use them for bioengineering serves to prove my point that the whole narrative in biology is engineering, which of course, it really is in support of everything you wrote yourself. Oh, I believe that engineering is the gold standard of all evolutionary theories. Richard Feynman said, that which I cannot build, I do not understand, right? And so, you know, doctors are kind of, well, kind of like engineers, right? Like, well. Yeah, I would say I'm admiring of doctors. I've worked with them a lifetime, so familiarity. It doesn't breed contempt. I greatly admire physicians, but the problem in the science is the term siloed, which is common. And you know, I think most people listening know what I mean. We get caught up in a narrow field. So there are terrific researchers in the microbiome. There are wonderful researchers in evolution. All of them are super bright. All the men and women that are doing this are super duper bright. The problem is a lot of them are very narrowly focused, but why? Because, their stage of preference is a laboratory that's humming. 
And a laboratory that's humming is grantsmanship. And grantsmanship is based very frequently on having shown a research result, which is uh, definable and can be subjected to further scrutiny, validation, or refutation. So they're forced to produce in a particular way. And so it's very frequent for them, for me to talk to scientists and they go, well, I just don't know about that. It's no different than physicians because we're all subspecialized now. The endocrinologist is not really going to know much orthopedics. In a world where specialization rules, which is truly so in academia, a guy like me could come in from the outside with an unusual generalist background and be able to connect the dots in an unusual way. Now, absolutely, yes. a lot of times yes. you come in from the outside and you connect the dots in a ridiculous way. But that's the point of science. It can be subjected to peer review and then those further decisions can be made about the credibility of the claims. So let's step back for a hollow bottom. So how strongly are you a mixture of microbes and your personal cells? Well, here's a good answer, bloodhounds. How do bloodhounds track? Hmm. And how well do they do it? Well, let me just tell you, they track unbelievably well. In fact, unerringly, hmm. up to several weeks after an individual has passed through, and they never forget a smell. It's true. I'm not, all this is validated information. Mm. What are they smelling? So we just casually say they're smelling. But what does that actually mean? Well, cells. They're smelling cells. They're selling our personal cells, which we shed by the billions. But here's the thing. We're shedding a personal microbial signature. Mm. So personal that a bloodhound has the capacity to distinguish them. Mm. So what does this mean for our culture and society going forward? It has really strong implications. Someday, in the not so very distant future, because it's already starting to be used, forensic researchers will be able to pinpoint someone who used a computer keypad two weeks after, just based on the microbial residues. Wow. That will be possible at some future time, because the experimental data is already in on it to suck out the air samples from a room. So there's no observer in the room. You suck out the air samples. It is theoretically possible you would know every single individual in that room. Wow. It's as if they had dropped their DNA into a big basket and then we sorted through them, all the different bits and pieces to find out and we recreate. But why is that? Because our association with microbes is so intimate that we're surrounded by a constant microbial cloud. You're sitting there and you've got an aura. Remember, remember the TV show about uh, Welcome Back, Cop? <laughs> well, we do, we just don't see it. It's the unseen that matters in this world. We think the seen matters. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, it is the unseen. Why is that? Because it's a microbial world. There's a great article by a, a gal, I think she's at Cornell now, it's um, uh, Morgan. McPhail, Nagai, and co-authors. The title of the paper was Animals in a Bacterial World. Well, that's a, that's a great title. It's not completely correct, but it's a wonderful title. It points out that we're just participants. We're also rants. Why am I saying this? Because microbes rule this planet. 
We think we do. How could we not think that? Look at us. We're powerful. Microbes are invisible. But here's the problem for us in our thought that we rule the planet. First of all, microbes have been continuously on this planet for 3 billion years. They are the ultimate survivors. We're just junior grade. Homo sapiens, a couple hundred thousand years. I mean, Homo sapiens just as we are. A couple hundred thousand years. Newcomers, we're yet untested in evolution of space time. We're just beginners. Go a step further. If we had a, a vast a universal scale and we're gonna weigh all of the animals and plants that we could see with our eyes versus all of the microbes, where would the scale tip? Well, I know that's gonna be hard for your listeners to believe, but the microbial side outweighs us. Further, there is not one place we can go where they're not. Miles below the ocean, well, miles below the earth, miles below the ocean, that's, the ocean surface is of course teeming with microbes, but miles below the earth's crust, there are microbes, plenty of them. And what are they living on? Radioactive emissions. Radioactive decay is their source of energy. So they're flexible. They are perpetual survivors. We're just along for the ride. It is theoretically possible for us to be conceived of as microbial vessels, as we're, we're purposed to serve them. And by the way, this is <laughs> crazy talk for me. There are great researchers who have pushed forward the theory that the point of our immune systems is to serve the microbes, to make sure the microbes can inhabit us in their states of preference and not. <laughs> That's an equal possibility. I mean, we reflexively assume that our immunological system is absolutely dedicated to protecting us against them. On the contrary, the case can be equally stated that it's the opposite. That's so how the inmates, the inmates are running the asylum. Absolutely. Look, <laughs> something we mentioned on the phone to each other, but I love this thought. You can entertain the notion, as strange as it may seem, that our purpose as humans, that our, our gift for using physical tools is that we are going to allow microbes from this planet to explore other places. <laughs> <laughs> you get, honestly, I know this, I'm sure your listeners are laughing now, just like you are. Well, it's, it's, am, it's amusing at least, but it is provocative, you know? It is. Well, why? So I'll ask you a question. Is there life on Mars? Of course there is. I'm sure there is, actually. There is, because we put it there. Yeah, exactly. So the problem with understanding the microbiome is that even with the new metagenomic sequencing, the, the new genetic tests, which are terrific compared to the old cultures, they're very imperfect. In fact, we are probably not even yet understanding 20% of the microbial life that's out there. And that's part of life that's in an asanas. We've only identified a little bit of a fraction. The rest of it's dark matter, and it's all influencing us. We concentrate on the microbiome, the bacterial side. There are a few scientists that are starting to work on fungi, the microbiome. And there's the virome, which is hardly studied, whatever, because it's just so difficult to do that. And by the way, we talking about evolution. We are a product of virusal sequences. So one of the things that I learned, you said, well, you know, how did I get to where I am thinking about evolution? Viruses 
are chock-a-block throughout our genome. The estimates vary, but at least a half. And crucial evolutionary innovations. For example, the mammalian placenta. That is the result of at least four invasions of endogenization of retroviruses. Crucial steps along the way to create the syncytial specialized tissues that allow a placenta to exist. So there's great literature on that. Frank Lyon, a physician from England, wrote a book about it. I'm not the first at all to start talking about it's, it. It's called Virolution. It's a great read, too. Exactly. But the point of it is, why are we part virus? Because there are only three cellular domains. There's bacteria. That's familiar. There's archaea. Those are the extremophiles. Those are the kinds of microbes, many of which microbes, that are right at the super hot vents at the bottom of the sea, or the ones that are, that are in the Earth's crust and so on. Archaea, very common. And then there's us, eukaryota. Those are the cells that have the nuclei and organelles, those, those specialized cells. We're relative newcomers to the scene, only a billion years old for eukaryota. But the virome is the fourth arm of biology. There are only four domains, as I like to say. And that virome is the means of communication. It is communication. It is living information. And I don't, we don't have time to discuss whether they're alive or not. It's not pertinent to our discussion per se, but that's why they're all through our genome, because they're part of the engineering process. They're crucial players of cross-kingdom communication, cross-domain communication among the cells that work together to make us. And what you're describing, Bill, is that you're giving a very, very wide view of everything where most 99% of researchers are going to tell you about the folding of some protein or, you know, some like extremely granular thing. And you're looking back and you're saying, well, you know, there's four pillars and one of them is the virome. You know, your book here, Microcosm Within. So if somebody wants to get a picture of your world, this is very deep. Are there a couple of other places that you would refer people if they want to go down the rabbit hole? Of Bill Miller? Uh, <laughs> yes. I do have a website, themicrocosmwithin.com. Okay. And I have a Twitter feed, which gives a really pretty lively, broad-based view of science, not just evolution, at yep. Bill Miller MD. And I welcome anyone that wants to follow along to please do so. I've got a lot of scientific papers. They can go to Google Scholar, ResearchGate. They can look up some very detailed things. But that's probably not for most of the people that are listening. What they'll find, though, the consistent message is that intelligent cells are the key to understanding life. It's not random. It has its purposes. It is not creationism. It is not design in the sense that intelligent design believes that we ought to believe. But it is a form of engineering design that suits cellular purposes. We, we are outcomes, we are outputs, we are solutions to cellular problems. There's no design ahead of time that's being forethought of any sort. And selection, natural selection exists because all that natural selection means is whatever is measured by the cell that allows it to engineer so that it can produce an outcome gets tested by the environment. It either meets the environment or it doesn't. So the role of selection is a consistent filter 
unambiguously, selection is a tool of the problem-solving cell to maintain itself in complementarity with the environment, to maintain itself in concert with the environment, which is its state of preference. You know what you just said is pretty much exactly how marketers think of testing out our hypotheses of what we're going to sell and how we're going to sell it is there's, there's an environment out there and we got ways of testing what the environment actually wants. And we jigger and we reconfigure things until it resonates with people. And that's how you end up with something like Starbucks. Um, exactly. Every organism goes out into the environment and experiences the contemporary environment. Through that experience, it gets what's termed epigenetic marks. And was, we don't have time to go through that science, except to say, we have learned that the genome is not immutable and that it's constantly adjusting through environmental influences. That process is the way cells solve problems. It's only problem is to say in concert with the environment. So everything we do is a continuous part of that process of exploration. And all of the organisms that you see that inhabit all the different places in the world, they're part of that self-same process around the planet. Cells that are being served, and we're granted the terrific illusion of being in charge, which I love. <laughs> I love the thought that I could possibly be in charge, but neither in the world nor at home. Well, Bill, this has been great. And I think, well, if there's one thing I took away, it was just the thought of just flipping things around and saying, so what if instead of yes, they exist exactly. for you, what if you exist for them, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you can look at the world at all these different scales, like, you know, well, I don't know, maybe the fruit flies are in charge, or maybe the amoebas are in charge, or maybe the blue-green algaes are in charge, or... Maybe the whales are in charge. So anyway, it's a beautiful way of rethinking, which is, I think, regardless of your final conclusions, what could be more valuable than seeing things in a different way? So Thank you, Perry. I really enjoyed speaking with you and appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, sir. Well, we'll catch up to you next time. Okay. Thanks very much. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0